Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Our guest this week is from Algebris, the hedge fund, where we've been talking to Davide Serra, the founder of the business. And from the US, we have Ben McClanahan talking to Nancy Bush of NAB Research. Today, we'll be talking about the crisis in Italian banking and whether a new policy initiative is enough to stop that crisis. Secondly, we'll be looking back at the first quarter results from the big US banks. And finally, Ben's interview with Nancy Bush in the US, talking about too big to fail banks and the policy response. So first, let's look at the latest developments in the Italian banking scene. Last week, we had a new backstop fund created under the direction of the government, but funded by the private sector, a 5 billion euro fund. This is aimed to stop the rot in terms of market sentiment about Italian banks, where investors have been fretting about a big pile of non-performing loans across the system and also the weakness of some of the smaller lenders. I'm joined by Davide Serra, who is head of the hedge fund Algebris, an Italian himself and a big investor in the Italian financial sector. Davide, thanks very much for joining us. Is this initiative enough to change market sentiment about Italian banks? I think it's the turning point in what I would call a reflexivity conundrum. If you look at the banking system in Italy, you're talking about ballpark 800 financial institutions. The top 10 represent about 60-70% of the market. On a GDP of about 2 trillion, you have banking assets which are slightly higher than that. You're looking at a liquid wealth in the country of around uh, three trillion, and it's very well funded in terms of loan to deposits. So banks are rich because clients are rich. The main problem with Italy lies on the public debt side, but not on the private wealth side. And there was a reflexivity whereby, for a capital shortfall between, let's say, two and three billion in two non-listed uh, savings banks, uh, you had a risk of a deposit run, which could have been self-fulfilling. And so I think the private sector did very well in getting together because basically they can invest zero pre-money in these institutions. I think they can work them out over the next couple of years. They can run them better because they were mismanaged. And so this had two positive effects. It stopped a self-fulfilling expectation of the pyramid collapsing. If you think that the country has 3 trillion euro of liquid savings, what are 2 billion euro? Yeah, we're talking about less than one basis point. And, and most importantly, from a bank's perspective, this will turn out to be cheaper and will end up making money. Because if I see what happened in November, December, when four small institutions were sized up, eventually they cost the banking system, the private sector, 4 billion euro. And those banks had less than 40 billion euro in total assets. These two institutions we're talking about, Veneto and Vicenza, first, they are in a very rich area, Veneto, close to Venice, They're looking at 10-15% GDP in the country. So you're looking at about 150 to 200 billion euro of GDP. Secondly, 
they're productive company. They're SMEs and companies which are performing good. You have some of the excellence in the country there, from Luxottica, which is the largest high brand manufacturer, to Illy Cafe, to Segafredo. So it's a real region with real businesses. And I think by injecting capital into this institution, they stabilize the market, they have time to work out the NPL problem, and net-net, uh, I think it's a win-win. Well, what about these non-performing loans, though? It's all very well to have a backstop fund, but there is something like 350, 360 billion euros of non-performing loans in the Italian banking system. Is this really going to be a 5 billion euro backstop fund? Is that going to deal with that issue? Yeah, I agree. Let's give some clarity to the numbers. 350 is the sum up of restructured, non-standard, substandard, and MPL loans. If you look at the definition of MPL loans, which is already strict in Italy, is only 200 billion. So the real issue is 200 billion, because all the remaining 150 are actually paying yeah, for the time being. So there's 200 billion that is not paying. Of the 200 billion, you already have 120 billion in cash provision. So that's provision that the private sector has already taken without any government guarantees, any government support. So the net number goes down to 80 billion. And for this 80 billion, there is a collateral value, which is estimated to be in the range of 120. Then we are the second largest investor in the country in uh, secured assets backed by real estate. And most of the time, we've already been analyzing a significant proportion of this MPL. Most of the time, no one disagrees on the value of the collateral. The key unknown is how long does it take to get hold of the collateral? This is the key question. Well, let me pick you up on that point about bankruptcy, because that is the nub of things, really, in relation to this whole MPL question and the collateral that Italian banks technically hold against loans. But under Italian bankruptcy law, it often takes far longer than elsewhere for collateral to be recovered. And the banks have understandably demanded that there be as a quid pro quo for this backstop fund, changes in the bankruptcy law. Is that going to happen, do you think? Yeah. So I think the first, let's say, uh, for the benefit of explaining the issue, if you look at the court proceeding in, let's say, UK, it takes about 24 months to get hold of a collateral. Uh, between France and Spain, it takes between two and two and a half years. In Italy, it can take between uh, five and seven years. And so clearly what's happening, that gap, if you apply a cost of equity of 7 to 8%, means that any collateral in Italy, simply because it takes two, three years longer, it's actually worth 20 25% less. And that is a key issue today. It's a key problem. Because the, when people say there is a market valuation gap between what banks have as collateral and market prices, it's all down to time value. Nobody disagrees on the value of a collateral. And I think for the interest of Italian citizens, it's no good to have a system that is so expensive, takes so long to settle civil causes. It's basically the number one obstacle to investment, both from the residents and from the international investor. And as a result, I think the government has already started the reform last year on civil proceeding, and I think it's going to accelerate it on the bankruptcy law. The bankruptcy law dates back to the Mussolini times, particularly on the corporate side. Back then, under Mussolini, basically it was very hard for businesses to go bankrupt because the revenue were directed at the state level. And so what happens, Italy has a very punitive bankruptcy law. If you go bankrupt, it's a real shame. You can't set up new businesses, and there are lots of problems whereby you know, people cannot lend to you. Today, for example, international funds cannot lend money in Italy. They need to be approved by Bank of Italy. So it's all sort of 
bureaucracy that basically make the system uncompetitive. And I think the government has been working on a, on a comprehensive reform package. That's what they've been saying, at least publicly, for the last couple of months. And then the issue is, when is the right time to put it through parliamentary approval? By reading the domestic press, I hear that it's happening very time soon, which would make sense, because basically, by accelerating uh, the court proceeding, suddenly the collateral value increases significantly, and that means that this fund, which is a private sector initiative, will be able to invest at a reasonable price, and as a result, fill the gap between current market prices, which price in the legislatively slow system, and suddenly by speeding up the value of recovery will increase the value, and hence, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. Let's turn to our second topic of the day, a look at the US bank results, which have been reporting quarterly earnings figures. Laura Noonan's here, our investment banking correspondent. Laura, what have we seen in terms of trends from the US banks? We had Morgan Stanley on Monday, which had numbers that looked pretty bad, although they beat very low analyst expectations. So good, but very bad. (laughs) I think that's this thing that we've seen fairly consistently across the US banking results season. So in the case of Morgan Stanley, on a per share basis, their first quarter earnings were down 53%. This apparently was cause for celebration because they were expected to be down 60%. So you're looking at very, very low expectations across all of the US banks. And also as we head into the European banks earnings season, we've got a similar theme. So early on in the year, we had very volatile market conditions. We had a lot of CEOs, a lot of CFOs coming out there making really some very, very grim pronouncements about the state of the world, which did then lead to a lot of analysts on both sides of the Atlantic making some very big cuts to their estimates. So people seem to have gone a bit too far in terms of the cuts because while there were fall-offs in major business areas on the investment bank side in particular, it isn't quite as bad as the kind of doomsday scenario people really feared on the back of some very heavy guidance from the banks themselves. Yeah, it all feels very mixed up, doesn't it? Because we've got stock markets in the US at record highs again now. Obviously, we're trailing things in terms of the results from the banks of the first three months of the year. Is there any sense of the current quarter and what the banks are thinking about how bad this quarter will be? I mean, if you take the overall investment bank and securities businesses on the security side, so that's on the side where they buy and sell shares, bonds, there's certainly a sense that things have turned. So we had some comments, I think, from the CFO of Morgan Stanley saying that he feels things are getting a little bit firmer with each day. So on that side, things are improving. And certainly in the second half of the first quarter, things actually began to turn around mid-Feb. So there's kind of cause for some cautious optimism there. On the other side, on the investment banking side, which is where they make fees for doing IPOs, M&As, various deals, we're not really hearing any optimism there because there were just these really big macro things which had been slowing everything down. So in the UK context, and I guess in the overall European context, you have the debate around the Brexit vote. That's not going to be resolved until the end of June. And it's very hard for anyone to think about buying or selling any major assets within the EU even when you have such a big uncertainty In the US, you have uncertainty around the US election. That isn't going to be dealt with until the autumn. So there are all these really big things which are making it very difficult to do investment banking deals. And when you talk to investment bankers on that side of the house, I'm hearing very little optimism for anything turning around there. So in summary, if the US bank results for the first quarter looked bad, albeit against even worse expectations, then uh, we certainly shouldn't get our hopes up about the European banks. Yeah, because the only bright spot in the US or one of the bright spots was around how the retail banks did. They actually had quite a good performance. 
in the European context, we haven't had any help on the interest rate side, so there's no real cause to expect anything other than the retail bank performance to have disimproved as well. Thanks for that, Laura. Let's move on to our final segment for the day. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Nancy Bush of NAB Research about, among other things, the issue of too-big-to-fail banks and the credibility, or lack of it, of regulators' plans to deal with them. The living wills, thinking back, it seems a long time ago now to Wednesday last week when J.P. Morgan got things going. Uh, Jamie Dimon seems a little upset that uh, some of his thunder had been stolen by this announcement, this surprise announcement. But in your latest column, published on SNL.com, you argued that the whole thing's a bit of a charade. Oh, it is, is absolutely. It is, and I'm not the only one who holds this opinion, but the thought that we're going to be able to, in the middle of a financial crisis, just stop, take a company like J.P. Morgan Chase and say, okay, well, you know, we think you're approaching a meltdown. You have to step aside. You have to follow through with this living will. You've got to find buyers for these organizations. You've got to value the assets correctly. It's just not going to happen. It's just a fantasy. It's a Dodd-Frank fantasy. The regulators know it's a fantasy, I believe. Certainly investors do. But everybody is sort of bought into this, as you say, charade. And I think it has become two things. Number one, a political club. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if you listen to um, Elizabeth Warren's little tete-a-tete with Janet Yellen several months ago on the whole thing of living wills. It's become sort of a political tool, and it's also become just this sort of exercise that the regulators feel they have to put the banks through in order to satisfy Congress and others. And and, yeah, it does matter. It matters to me that the banks pay attention, that they do it correctly, because it does, Ben, I think it does one thing. It forces the banks to look at how they are organized. And, you know, Wells Fargo, we can discuss Wells Fargo, but Wells Fargo, the fact that one of the the pieces of feedback that they got from the regulators was that, you know, your segmentation of your company into different regions and how you would divest those regions is not realistic. Mm -hmm. Well, that says something to me about the process. They're, They're not taking the process seriously. And it's supposed to be the simplest, uh, the most American, the least complex of all. Amazing, isn't it? How can it not pass? And how how can I I think they they took the fact that in 2014 they were the only large bank to sort of get a pass. They didn't get a complete pass, but to get a pass on this process. And they didn't take the process seriously. They got very direct and I think very damaging commentary from the Fed, which is you have material problems. You have material problems with your processes. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons the stock has been somewhat of a laggard in the last few days, not just that earnings were not, you know, impressive, but that all of a sudden everyone is reevaluating or reevaluating Wells management as a result of this. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Ben and Nancy in the US, Laura here in the studio and Davide Serra from Algebris. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.